0: Got a question for you this morning. Maybe you've been a- asking this to yourself, but here's the question Why do people who have had too much to drink make such bad decisions? Well, when I drink Kool Aid, that doesn't happen. Why? There's probably a correlation, there's probably not a correlation between drinking and making good decisions. Probably no, nobody's ever made that study. But maybe you have drank too much before. I, I'm not accusing, I'm just saying. And you've made some bad decisions because those things happen. In fact, our son, when he was in high school, when he turned 18, he became a jailer for our, our county's jail. And at the same time, while he was in college, he came to me and he said, Dad, would you like to take Aikido lessons with me? Well, he really wasn't saying, Hey, Dad, I really want to spend quality time with you because you're the rock star of my life. That wasn't what he was asking. He was asking, Dad, will you pay for my Aikido lessons and yours as well? I read right through it. I, the boy has sent me down that path several times. Try to be a supportive father. And I said, Josh, I love you. No. He said, Not even half. And I said... No, I love you, son, but no. Really, dad? You're not going to do this? (laughs) He knew I was, I kind of wanted to do it, but I, I, if I knew that if I invested my money, he wouldn't take it as seriously. So he ended up being a black belt. Now he's a major in the Marine Corps and he's got all kinds of martial arts. I mean, just don't mess with him. But there was a time I've lived in town. We've all, Stacey and I, we've lived in town the whole time we've been here in ministry. And so every once in a while, we have to deal with the drunk in town. That's just part of, living in the city of Brazil, I think. Maybe I'm just lucky that way, but maybe you don't. But anyway, we had a drunk in our yard, and Josh was pretty good at Aikido by that time, and I said, uh, son, we got to do something about this, but I said, uh, your job now that you've invested your time in Aikido is to protect the dad, because you and I are going to walk out and talk to him, but if he does anything and he acts erratic, because a lot of times... And I'll tell you the reason why people that are drink don't make good decisions. But I said, listen, your job is to protect the dad. And he said, what do you mean? He said, you, I, you're a jailer. You have, you know, you're a Aikido guy. I said, just protect me. If anything goes wrong, you take him out. Understand, son? Because I didn't want my name in the newspaper. I didn't. Uh, youth pastor of Brazil First Christian Church in jail for fighting with a drunk. But Josh, being a jailer, and you know, he take him out. And so Josh was just looking forward. I mean, he was just like, I could tell he was just super excited. So we have this conversation and I said, you, buddy, you've got to move on. You just got to move on or we'll have to call the police. Well, he got a little agitated. I said, I have my son here. You and him can go at it, but leave me out. And he went away, believe it or not. But, but here's the deal. Why am I talking about drinking? And, and, and here's the deal. The reason why I'm talking about drinking is because When you're drinking, when you're inebriated, you can't pick up on the social and relational cues that are normal that we all try to pick up on. And sometimes when we're sober, and I hope all of you are sober, but some of you I kind of wonder about. But Don't take that personally, but if it's you, you might think about it. Anyway, but physiologically there are two reasons why, if we're drinking, that we might make... Poor decisions. First reason is because there's an increased norepinephrine. I had to practice that word all week to be able to say that. Increased norepinephrine. Well, what it, what that's saying is that alcohol stimulates our brains, and so when that's stimulated and our our guard is down because of another reason, then then we do stupid things. We 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 have less impulse control. And the second reason is because there's a decreased activity of the prefrontal cortex. This front part of our brain, which isn't fully developed until your 20s, is something that is diminished because of the alcohol, and and so you don't have a connection to your conscience or impulse control. So instead of saying what you should say, you say what you don't say, and instead of getting quieter, you get louder, and and, and instead of saying, no, I'm not going to fight, you fight, and so all kinds of things occur. Ron White said it best. He said when when he was getting arrested for drunkenness, he knew he had the right to remain silent, but he didn't have the ability to. That's how, how he said it. I have the right to remain silent, but I didn't have the ability to because he was drunk. He'd been drinking. And so I, I just want you to realize that when we're drunk, we have silenced that ability to hear our conscience, to pick up on those social cues, those relational cues, cues that we need to make good decisions. And if you're joining us online today, hey, we're glad you're here and know it's cold outside, but we're Hoosiers and, and we go to church regardless of the weather, and I just want you to know that it's better here than it is online, even though you think you got a slip because you're in your pajamas and you're drinking coffee and you're sitting on your couches and you're lazy boys and you're super comfortable. But if you're in Florida if you're my mother-in-law in Tennessee, hey, I love you and I'm glad you're joining us online. Mom and Dad, I love you too. Thanks for being here. And the rest of you that should be here, I hope to see you next week because it is better in here. Worship was just amazing this morning. Amen? <clears throat> Knocked it out of the park, and it's moving. So, if it's moving you online and uh, you're checking us out, come and join us. We love it. Anyway, often overlooked relationship between good questions and good decisions. That's what we're. That's the big idea of this series. And the memory verse, the go-to verse for this series, is Proverbs twenty-seven twelve. We've been saying it every week. You should know it by now. Say it with me together. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. What that's saying is the shrewd, the the sensible, the crafty, they see the danger coming, and they take refuge, they get out of the way, but the simple, the naive, the foolish, they continue in going. In the direction. And so we're asking some questions that we're looking over in this series. The first question is the honesty question that we went over the second week of this series. The honesty question is Am I being honest with myself? And we even added a word Am I being honest with myself really? And the idea behind this is that we are not often honest with ourselves and tell ourselves the truth. Instead, we lie to ourselves and we deceive ourselves. And that's harmful to ourselves. And then we talked about a cognitive bias, and the cognitive bias that we talked about that week is the confirmation bias, which is when we get an opinion, we make a decision, then we look for everything that confirms and affirms our decision. When there's a time where we need to step back and consider and hear other voices and get more information. The second second question that we looked at was last week. It was a legacy question. That question was, what story do I want to tell? After I make this decision, whether a good decision or a bad decision, whether a moral or immoral decision, what story do I want to tell? What, What story do I want my kids to know, my grandchildren to know about my life? Because it will last. It will be a legacy question. What story do I want to tell When it's no longer an event or a current event in the immediate, but in the future, what story do I want to tell? And the cognitive bias we looked at was focalism, which was focusing or giving weight to what was immediate and giving weight to what maybe was the first information we received in the decision-making process and focusing too much on that rather than getting a, a larger picture. Focalism. Today, the question is this the third question is a conscience question. Is there attention that I should pay attention to? Is there attention that I should pay attention to? While we're thinking about that, I, I want to kind of point this out. In my life, I've heard it said that it was a prompting of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you might have heard it like this. It was a check from the Holy Spirit. Just something was not complete. It just didn't feel right. Have you been there and you've been ready to pull the trigger on a decision and you've had a plan, but all of a sudden you just don't feel right about the plan? Maybe it's a red flag moment where you know Something is wrong, but you just can't put your finger on it. You ever been there? If you're honest, I would say you probably have. And sometimes you ignore it, and sometimes you listen to it, and you stop. And you might be thinking this. I don't make decisions based on my feelings or on some intangible tension that probably doesn't deserve my attention. I just look at the facts, and then I decide based on the facts. Well, you're smart people. You're intelligent people. You probably make your decisions on the facts. But let me push back just a little bit with you. I think we all think that. But when we have that moment, that red flag, that prompting, that check, you might think about this. The brain science says this. It says, actually, there's a specific part of our brain alerting us to pay attention. That the pieces, I I, I put it this way, the pieces in the puzzle haven't come together yet. They haven't fit correctly. And your brain is still trying to resolve that process and that information. And so I would encourage you to press pause in those moments and think about your decision because something is checking you. The pieces aren't completely all together now, have you ever been in a situation where you think you've got a plan and you've made a decision, and then somewhere, someone like your mom, mom, I know I'm talking about you, but you're in Florida, I'm here, so I'm okay. But you've had a decision, and, and somebody like your mom comes alongside of you and says, hey, Chris, have you thought about this? Hey, Chris, that, that may be illegal. Have you thought about that? I can, I can remember one time. I mean, I was like 16. I could barely drive. It was scary. I failed my driving test twice until I passed it. No lie, the driving test. But I, I was fixated on a motorcycle. Focal, I was focused to the mask. Max on this motorcycle. I wanted it so bad. I could just see myself. This was the seventies. It's a long time ago for a lot of you. It's the seventies. I had this long hair down to my shoulders. I could just imagine myself. I would have been a chick magnet in the seventies. <laughs> I just laugh and I on this motorcycle. But my parents were concerned to me about me because for them, all the pieces were fitting together. Here's a guy that had flucked his test that if you put him on a motorcycle was probably going to kill himself. And so out of a love for me, they made a hard stand and said, no mo- motorcycle for you. Your brother, yes, because he can drive, but you can't. So you can't have that. But, but, but have you had, uh, a point where you're mid-decision and somebody comes along and says, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And have you thought about this? And you step back and say to them, this is none of your business. You don't know anything about this decision. You you don't work in this environment. You're You're not going through this in your life. You have no business. But yet it's nagging inside your head because... Something's not quite right. And really, when it comes down to it, we all have a tendency to dodge the truth by discounting the truth teller. And this is a cognitive bias, too, that a lot of times maybe it's social media or news or something that you won't listen to, no matter if they're right or not. Or a person who's in your life that they think they know it all and and most of the time they don't, but on this situation they do, and it's just nagging at you. And my best advice for you in these moments of tension is to pay attention to the tension. And when you're not for sure or those noises, those people are talking in your head... I would suggest to allow the tension to rise up and get as big as it possibly can get. And before you decide if something bothers you, let it bother you. Face it and embrace it, but don't excuse it. Face that tension until it either goes away or you decide to go in a different direction. So some of you are saying, well, Chris, you've used one verse. So where's the Bible going to be in all of this? And if you're online, I hope you join us. First Samuel chapter 24 is where we're going to go. If you have a tablet or on your phone, or you've got a literal Bible book in your hand, I hope you will go there. And and I'm just going to encapsulate the life of King David. If you if you know the story, if you read through First Samuel, it's a great read, great story. I love King David. I love David's life. We we first meet him as a shepherd boy and. We see a prophet come to his home, and when a prophet comes to his home, your home, and tells your dad, "Hey, one of your boys is going to be king." That's a pretty good day. That's the best life you could have. So Samuel comes to David's house, Jesse's house, David, David's part of the household, and and and. I think there's seven brothers, and then David's the eighth brother. I forget for sure. But anyway, David was the youngest. And so he comes in the house. They have a big feast. They have a big party. But they David's out in the field with the sheep. I mean, he, he is of no consequence. He has bigger, better, brighter brothers than himself. And so they go from the eldest to the youngest. And Samuel is checked by God, prompted by God, and says, hey, None of these boys are what God is telling me is going to be a king. You got any other, other sons? Jesse, and he, he said, oh, yeah, but that's no count David. He's out shepherd. He's just a, a young kid. Well, call him in. And lo and behold, Samuel anoints David to be king. Now, there's a problem in Israel. This would be a problem in any kingdom. The problem was there was already another king and his name was Saul and he wasn't very good at kinging. He just wasn't. He was wasn't didn't have a heart for God, didn't follow God well. And so here King da- or David was anointed king but yet there was another king and so then y'all know the story about uh, uh, Israel fighting with the Philistines, and they're squared off, and there's this big giant named Goliath, and he is harassing the Israelites and saying, hey, if you guys will fight it out, just me and whoever you choose, and nobody would step up and and fight Goliath, the, the giant. And David, again, was still left at home, and all his brothers were out at out at the battlefield, and and Jesse said, hey, you need to go bring some food to to your brothers and check on them and give some food to the commanders so that they'll take care of them, your brothers won't get killed. And so David goes, because, I mean, where else would you want to be if you were a kid and, and, and you were a shepherd boy? Where the, you wouldn't want to be where the action was, right? That's where you'd want to be. And so David goes there, and he hears this Goliath taunting all of Israel, and he's looking around and saying, well, what does the guy get if he takes on this giant? And they look around, and, and, and his brothers hear about him asking questions about fighting the giant. And David says, hey, the Lord is with me. I, you know, I kill lions and bears with my slingshot. I can take this giant out. And his brothers just said, oh, David, you're so stupid. Get out of here. But instead, Saul, King Saul, hears about this guy and says, let me see this kid. So he comes in, Saul says, hey, try on my armor, and David says, it doesn't fit, and so then he goes and he takes out Goliath. Now what occurs here is that David makes the national news, he's on Facebook, he's on Instagram, they got a picture of him with with, uh, the giant's head because he took took, uh, the giant's sword, Goliath's sword, and cut his head off. I mean, this is dramatic. I mean, he's a national hero. Everybody knows about David. He's the boy next door. He's the shepherd boy. And so David becomes a warrior for King Saul's army. He becomes so popular that when he vanquishes an enemy, when the parade comes in town, they say, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul, not being a good king, was immediately jealous of David's popularity. And so Saul tries to kill David several times. And this particular episode in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David is in the desert of En Gedi, and he's got about 400 delinquents with him, kind of fugitives as David is himself. And in 1 Samuel 24, we see that David is... Being hunted down by Saul. Saul has gathered 3,000 men to follow him to go kill David. Now, David supports the king. He, he is loyal to the king. He's not done anything worthy of death. All he has done is been an obedient servant. So this is not right. But you gotta know something about this area, the Engedi, the desert of Engedi. There's all kinds of caves. There's all kinds of places to hide. And so, King Saul is taking his entourage through the Iengeti, but he has to go and relieve himself. Now, if you're a young person, if you're in elementary or middle school, you're going to love this. Because David has, I mean, King Saul has to go use the bathroom. And so he picks out a cave, and he goes to a cave to use the, the bathroom. But what he doesn't know is that out of all the caves in Iengeti, that David and some of his guys are back in the recesses of the of the cave, and so, as Saul comes in, they move back and saul david 's guys are looking at, at at David and saying, "Hey, this is God, we can quit doing all this guerrilla warfare we can we can stop eating uh ramen noodles over the fire we can we can." Stop eating MREs. We can we can go home. We can get a shower. I can sleep with my wife. We can be back with my kids. It's going to be wonderful. And David says, "Yeah, that's a good idea." And he pulls his dagger and he he's heading up to kill Saul because Saul has gone in there and just gone in from from the mid-eastern sun into a dark cave, can't see very well, and he just goes into the cave far enough that he has some privacy. He casts off his robe, and he, he uses the bathroom. And David sneaks up. But in his spirit, David paid attention to the tension. Now, this is remarkable. He had all his guys who were wanting him to kill Saul, he wanted to kill Saul. In his heart of hearts, he knew if Saul had the same opportunity, he would have killed David in a heartbeat. But something was checking him. Something was causing a red flag moment. So when David went up, he cut a piece of Saul's robe that he had laid aside and carried it back to his guide's. And his guy said, David, you got some explaining to do. Dude, God, God has given you your enemy into your hand. You could be king. We can unite Israel. All of this would be over. Let us kill him. And David said, No, forbid it, because King Saul was the Lord's anointed. And if God made King Saul king, then who am I? To do that. And in fact, David was humbled and he was heartbroken because he'd cut his robe because he got to understand in, in the Middle East that when he cut his robe and he took that piece of robe, he was basically challenging royalty and what God had set in, in place that God had sovereignly done. And so he felt some guilt. So Saul picks up his clothes, puts his robe back on, and he walks out of the cave. And we've got to stop for a moment. I want to step back. And we've got to realize something else. That David didn't know what the outcome would be if he would have murdered King Saul. Now, if I would have been David in that moment, I read this passage lots of times, uh, at least 35 times over the years. And I always said, David, you were just stupid. I mean, I always walked away from that. But, but when you really, really step back and look at this passage, he wasn't being stupid. He was uh, listening to God, and he was paying attention to the tension. But he didn't know what the outcome would be. And I would have said, hey, dude, it's the, 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 the war is over. But, but in that moment, he wasn't at war with Saul God had delivered him. He had allowed him to have been there, but it was a test. It really was a test of David's character because he would have murdered Saul in that moment. And we've got to be careful. When we think our decisions and we know what the outcomes are going to be, I don't think we should be as certain as what we are sometimes. Because we believe in certain circumstances that we can predict the future or even control outcomes. And folks, that's another cognitive bias. It's the illusion of control. We think that we know what's going to happen. Now let me tell you this. We have a fantasy football league here at the church. The first year we had the fantasy football league two years ago, guess who won? I won. Now, this year, I went in into fantasy football thinking I knew it was just luck. My, my The name of my team is No Luck, okay? I have a No Luck team because I just assumed I would lose. Right? No Luck. Plus, you know, Andrew Luck was the quarterback of the Colts. It's my favorite team. And so this year, guess who won fantasy football again? Brady, I just want you to know I'm bragging now, okay? <laughs> I won again. Now, listen here's the deal. I don't watch football. I just pick the best players that I can get. And there have been nights where I knew that I was going to lose. In fact, one night I was so far behind, I went to bed, but I got up the next morning and guess what? I won. And in fact, the guy was really mad at me who, who I beat. And I said, dude, it was just luck. I had no idea. And and, and the games that I went into that I thought, hey, no problem, I'll win these. I only lost two games in the whole season. The, by a couple of the, I won't say the worst teams, but not the strongest teams in the league. And it was, if I can't predict that, how do we think that we can predict something? You don't always predict outcomes accurately, do we? in our lives. We think we're making a choice for the better, and it's not. And realize this, ignoring the tension in your gut will set you up for disappointment. Let's go back to the David story. If David would have murdered King Saul, what would his story be? Can you imagine his grandkids saying to him, Hey, Grandpa, tell us that story again of how you snuck up in a cave while King Saul was using the bathroom and you slit his throat. That was a courageous story, Grandpa. That wouldn't have gone over so well, would it? That would have been a terrible story to tell. We've got to think about the stories that we're writing right now. With every decision that we're making now let me tell you the rest of the story Saul goes out of the cave and David goes out after him holding that piece of robe and he yells out King Saul King Saul and 3,000 heads turn of Saul's army and there Saul was stunned by the realization that David could have taken his life And he says, why are you chasing me, just a flea of Israel that has nothing against you and, and, and doesn't want to harm you at all? Why are you trying to kill me? Then Saul says, is that David, my servant David? And Saul was humiliated in front of his whole army that he had been let go when God had delivered his life into David's hands, and David gave it back to him and Saul even says to David that you are more righteous than I am because he was because he paid attention to the tension. Saul wasn't humiliated by David's military skill. he was humiliated by David's humility Is't that amazing? That David, in his humility, gives Saul his life back. When most of us don't have the self-control to keep ourselves from doing something like that. Now, seven chapters later, if David would have only known that seven chapters later in the book of 1 Samuel, that Saul and, and Israel is at war with the Philistine army again, and a Philistine archer sent forth an arrow while Saul was fighting and found a weakness in Saul's armor, and Saul is struck, mortally wounded by this Philistine archer. And then Saul kills himself because he doesn't want it to be known that he was killed by a Philistine, and he falls on his own sword. And so God had a plan so that David becomes a king without murdering the king. That was his plan. So think about this. Whenever you're making a decision of any consequence, you have to stop and ask yourself, is there attention that deserves my attention? You, you all know that uh, I did some house flipping in the 90s and early 2000s, and now I have properties that I, I rent. But there was a time where we were living on Red Street, and there was a house catty-corners from us that I wanted to buy. It was a dilapidated house, but I wanted to buy it. But we couldn't come together. We couldn't come together to be able to buy the house. We were $10,000 Apart and, and a lot of times I will make, make the difference or go halfway or do something, but there was a check in my spirit. There was just something that wasn't, did not fit together. And I just walked away. That's unusual for me because I needed something to do and this was in my neighborhood. It improved the value of my house and it would help everybody else in the neighborhood, but I just walked away and I was at peace with it. So the owner of the house who had inherited it decided, to rehab the house like I would have to flip it. And what happened was, when they got in the house, the house was so bad that, you know what they did? They had to completely demolish it all. And I would have lost everything at that moment. But there was something in my heart. I was fortunate, I was lucky, that in that moment, I paid attention to the tension. Is there an area in your life that you need to pay attention to the tension In your conscience. Three questions. Number one, as we leave today. Do you have a name for your internal warning system? Red flag, prompting of the Spirit, check of the Spirit. Pieces pieces don't fit together. Question number two. Have you ever been really close to pressing go on a big decision, but at the last minute you bail for no other reason than something about it just doesn't seem right? And finally, question number three. In what ways does our memory verse from Proverbs pay attention to the tension, the prudency, danger, and hide the simple, keep on going? Will you please stand as I pray? Eternal God and Father, we are grateful for this time. And Father, we know that the most important decision in our life is to follow Jesus, but the second most important is to be a follower of Jesus, an actual disciple. That adheres to the your words, to be obedient, to be more than just a fan. And Father, in this moment, there are people that are making some decisions, whether to join this fellowship, whether to come to Christ for the first time, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to be baptized. Father, there's maybe a tension that they need to pay attention to, that their conscience is weighing on them and saying i gotta make this right or or this is not fitting together and father i just pray that you would speak louder that the tension would rise in such a way that they know the direction that they need to go and father i just thank you for the work of your spirit and the promptings and the checking that guide our lives to make our lives better and may we make wise decisions to have a better life and we've Father, pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.